0: Welcome to the Alamo Drafthouse Richardson and the kickoff of season nine of Airtime. Without any further ado, I will pass it over to our gracious and fabulous leader, Miss Kitty Goddard. Thank you.
1: I will have to reiterate the first words that David said. It's hard to believe this is the kickoff to season nine of Airtime. This is the beginning of the sixth year in partnership with Alamo Draft House. So another round of applause for that. I also wanted to acknowledge this evening. This is a very special event, and this is the, there are a lot of numbers tonight. This is the fourth year that we have been in partnership with Richardson Reads One Book. And acknowledge Janet Vance who is the vice president of Richardson Reads One Book and Susan Allison who is the director of the Richardson Public Library for their willingness to partner with AIR again on this really terrific opportunity to share about how important reading is and reaching a variety of audiences and a variety of topics. Uh, So we're excited you could be here and also wanted to tell you that the Richardson Reads One Book event with the author lecture is next Tuesday, Wednesday. It's on September the 19th at Richardson High School at 7.30 p.m. Tickets are free, but you do have to have a ticket. And there are tickets on the table back there, they're black and white, they look like this. And if you have not read the book The Circle by Dave Eggers, Half Price Books is in the lobby selling those books this evening. They are $12.30 plus tax. I encourage you to read the book. It may surprise you in some amazing ways. Also, I wanted to acknowledge that tonight's event is also partially funded by a partnership and through a grant from Richardson Altrusa, and we appreciate their participation as well. And also, underwritten for the entire season, uh, through Eric L. and Deanna Wise of Wealth Star Advisors. And Eric is here tonight, if you would please be recognized. And then I want to recognize David Fisher, who is back as our moderator. And uh, as you, some of you may know, and those who don't, our interviews are audio recorded and podcast later on iTunes. We've had more than 7,000 downloads. I encourage you to go listen to some previous interviews, and um, you, I, you, hopefully you'll enjoy those too. Anyway, David is the assistant director for the Dallas Office of Cultural Affairs. So he comes from a background that equally supports all of the efforts of AIR. Also, I just have to do my own mini introduction of Dr. Dennis Kratz, and just share with you that Dennis is a scholar, he's an arts patron, and best of all, he's a really good friend of Ayers, and he serves on our advisory board, and he and I first met when we were serving on the City of Richardson Cultural Arts Commission, and there were some who thought that we should probably leave. But but we both hung in there. We We were were supposed
2: to go on the road together.
1: Well, that's still coming. (laughs) Anyway, so we thank Dennis for being here this evening, and you're in for a real treat, and I'll turn it over to you all.
0: Thank you, Kitty. So as Kitty said, uh, it's September 11th, 2018, and please help me welcome our guest for this evening, Dr. Dennis Kratz, the Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at the University of Texas at Dallas. And Likewise, as Kitty said, we're also partnering with Richardson Reads One Book, so we'll have some questions with Dennis and some questions about the circle, some questions with Dennis about the circle, all of those it. things. So, so uh, Dr. Kress, just to start out, you have degrees in Latin and philology, which I had to look up. <laughs> uh, I was pretty sure I knew what it was. You have to tell us the definition of philology. And your current work seems to be focused on antiquity and Western culture. Um, tell us how you got through. How, how did you get from Latin to philology to Dallas, Texas? Oh.
2: Usually, it's how did you get it from there to actually having a job? <laughs> uh, uh, I I love language. Um, uh, so my brother is an engineer. He was uh, he was always attracted to mathematical symbols and mathematical reasoning. I was always drawn to words. Um, and in high, I actually went to a high school in in Baltimore. I uh, started Latin in the seventh grade and took four years of Latin in high school. And just like the language, uh, it's a fascinating. Uh, somewhat blunt language. Uh, Then I went to college, I went to to Dartmouth College, and I was walking around one day and the classics professor called me and said, "Uh, you got an 800 on the Latin board, we (laughs) want you. Uh, And I'm easy, I'm a guy. Um, I said, okay. Uh, So I took a a Latin course again in my uh, freshman year. And then, Latin with lead, like, it's like marijuana to hard drugs. Latin leads in to Greek.
0: Um,
2: and I took Greek uh, in the sophomore year and it's like diving into a pool of intoxicating wine. It's the most beautiful, elegant, subtle language ever created uh, from the mind of humanity. Um, And you just, it's poetic, it's intellectual, learning, it has so many cases and things, and I just got absorbed in it. And so that's how I became a classics major, just uh, being imbued with a fascination, first with the language and then with the genius of the people who wrote in it. Homer, Euripides, Plato, I spent my life hanging out with brilliant people. went to graduate school what do you do with a classics degree i went to graduate school i I went to harvard i got a master's degree in classics um and the other great thing about greek by the way is um i met another greek major a young woman who was studying uh greek interestingly at wellesley college and she's not here so i can tell stories I was looking for, between my junior and senior year, I was looking for someone to read Greek with. Talk about a quixotic quest. And someone (laughs) said, well, there's this young young woman, Abby Abby Robinson, who also started Greek. And we met over reading the Medea together. (laughs) Now, I don't know if you know the Medea. Um, but through the whole drama, she kept going, you go, girl, to Medea. And, and well, that was the story. So I, I not only got degrees, I got a wife and a wonderful family, um, but uh, I also, we also got married. So my, you, you missed the bad degree. Um, I started teaching school after one year of graduate school, because we didn't have any money uh, and my father-in-law wasn't thrilled with me. Uh, I got a job teaching at a small private school in Boston called the Roxbury Latin School as a Latin and Greek teacher, um, which after UT Dallas is the finest position I've ever had. These were incredibly bright, all boys, young boys, um, all of whom would wound up uh, until my president as McDermott Scholars at UTD. Um, And uh, when I started teaching, I made a strategic decision uh, about my PhD. Classics seemed not all that marketable. Okay, so I decided to go for the money and I got a PhD instead in medieval Latin. (laughs) That laughter is cruel. Um, But I am available for parties, um, (laughs) showing showing parents of students who are are afraid their students are gonna major in humanities that anybody can get a job. Um, uh, So I spent my life, my, my real study is transformation. I became fascinated with how writers in the Christian Middle Ages encountered and transformed the classical tradition uh, into another tradition. How do you take something like the Aeneid uh, or the Odyssey, this is a smart group, they know who they are, Um, and revise them, both paying homage to them, keeping what's, transcendent and abiding about them, while at the same time recreating them to make them speak to a new culture. Uh, and that, that's, that's been my study all my life, and that's really what I think I do as a professor uh, and as a dean. I'm interested in taking what's abiding about the humanistic tradition, the liberal arts, and not presenting them as something ancient but uh, transforming them to speak to a new generation.
0: Now, do you have to do you have to take it at its face value? Do you ha- do you have to study the origin first before you can transform it, or can you experience it in its transformed state? Yes. That's question. <laughs> um... well, I mean, the, the, the study of Shakespeare. There are Shakespeare scholars, but I would guess that Shakespeare is at least a generation yeah. removed from? Well, if we get into science fiction
2: later, studying antiquity, studying is no different from reading science fiction. It's a totally and completely alien culture that, whose values are radically different, whose view of life is radically different. Um, the answer to the question is really yes. Uh, I, I, I used to tell my students, well, one of my catchphrases uh, as, a, as a professor was, the phrase, pearls before swine. Okay. Now, how many of you know who I'm quoting when I say pearls before swine? Guess what that makes the people who didn't raise their hands. Um, it's a big person, it's an important person, it's Jesus. Remember when they said, how come you don't tell, give lectures like boring professors do? How come you tell stories? He says, well, you, you don't cast pearls before swine, the point being that to appreciate something you have to know something. A pig walking past a pearl is just gonna walk past it or try to eat it or something. So my view is the depth of your knowledge impacts the depth of your ability to appreciate anything, whether it be a sports event or a work of, a work of great literature. So when you become fascinated with something, yes, It's like becoming fascinated with a person. You want to learn all about them. But you don't want to have your learning get in the way of what you're reading, which is really a work of art.
0: So uh, tell us a little bit about the what, give us a definition or a a brief note on what the heroic tradition is.
2: They're going to miss the movie. So the word heroism is up there with words like myth and goodness as among the most misused or carelessly used words that there are. We use the word hero in general to talk about someone who does something good or important. Uh, Unless, of course, they were captured and then they're not heroes anymore. Um, Oh, good, some got that. (laughs) Um, The the heroic tradition I write about is the heroic tradition that Homer described, the warrior hero that uh, I believe is an ethic that continues to have a deep influence on everybody in the West. And basically, the heroic ethic um, it has three parts to it. One is that life is a contest, a series of contests. You're always in battle or in combat in some way. Um, the second part of it, of course, the goal of contest is easy. You either win or you lose. If it's war, you win or you're dead. Okay? So the purpose of life is to win contests. The purpose of winning, for those of you who read The Iliad recently, which you should do again soon, is glory. It's not to do the right thing, it's to have people say wonderful things about you and to become famous, because famous helps you become rich, but rich is less important than famous. So it's be in a contest, win, gain glory, And of course, the third thing is the one way to lose glory is to have somebody uh, say something bad about you or hurt you, because if that happens, you must take vengeance on them. So the heroic ethic is basically combat, glory, vengeance. And it's taken multiple forms throughout Western history in particular. And in one way, the history of the West is the history of trying to uh, domesticate that ethic so that um, you don't do it for yourself, which was what Homer's people did, but rather try to domesticate that and channel it into doing good things for your country or your religion, et cetera.
0: So what would some modern examples of heroes be, either in literature or real life?
2: Depends how you use the word hero. Um, there are lots of heroes, but I'm not. I'm not writing about them. This is my what I'm writing about. Um, okay, if I tell you, you have to swear you to secrecy. Is everybody okay with that? Raise your hands. Are you okay? If you tell, I will come and beat you up, or have someone bigger do it. Um, and I will gain glory from that, um, because I'm taking vengeance on you. Um, the perfect example in the modern world of the old heroic ethic is President Donald Trump. Now, I remember I didn't say he's a hero. I say he lives by the heroic ethic. Well, think about it. What's his favorite word for somebody he hates? One, two, three. Loser. Loser. You've got my early reference. What's he talk about his entire campaign? He was winning. Winning. Okay. What's he do to somebody who criticizes him? Vengeance. I've got quotes on this. You can't tell because I'm writing a book on this. Um, <laughs> and the third is, of course, his obsession with his fame, with his glory. I mean, he is yeah uh, there's somebody in the audience who gets mad when I say he 's just like Achilles because he 's not uh, he just has the same ethic um, for those who are the the uh, haven't read The Iliad recently I'm going to say he's more like a character named Thersites, and I hope okay. that at least eleven people go home and look up Thersites <laughs> tonight but so uh, I have this belief that America is a country that tries to blend two completely incompatible ethics.
0: So uh, just as a a side note, when we get to the top ten questions, remember the Thersites reference. Okay.
2: (laughs) You know, I can end this any time simply by pulling out and getting on my cell phone. And being thrown out by an Alamo. Um, <laughs> so I thought control But well, someone
0: would need to complain yeah. and put up a white ticket. Oh, uh, is that what they do? That's what they do. Uh, didn't happen the last time. Um, where were we? <laughs> we were talking about heroes. Heroes. Um. So, and, and actually, just reminded um, in the news yesterday and today, the Texas state legislature yeah. is taking the word heroic out of the description of the men at the Alamo. I heard that. Um,
2: and, and Why were, was it
0: put in and why should it be taken out? We know
2: actually they were, that's a good thought, because they were close to the warrior heroic ethic um, in, in very many ways. But uh, you were asking me, um, because, uh, I slipped that way, <laughs> when you said that, oh, I know, it's, it's this notion that two incompatible ethics and the ethic I just described is the exact opposite of the Christian ethic that America says it follows, which is forgiveness, questing, um, and humility. And the greater good. And the greater good. That's what, to so my mind, that's why I've been studying Western culture all my life. I love marriages of incompatible ideas. Um, One of the geniuses of the 20th century was Deng Xiaoping in China, who said, hmm, communism, capitalism, totally incompatible, let's put them together. Uh, I think genius is, in fact, linking things that other people think are separate.
0: So does the the Eastern uh, civilization have a similar ethic to our hero ethic? No.
2: Okay, uh, Japan, Japan has a little bit like it, but one of the issues of dealing with uh, Asia, in fact, is I think most Americans see the world through this, this uh, what's called the moral, uh, the moral or social imaginary. They see the world in terms of either Christianity, uh, of a mix of Christianity and heroism. It's 9/11, folks, and in 9/11, George Bush got up and. Instead of saying, he never said, we forgive you. Uh, he never he never talked like that. He said, we're going to take vengeance on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we have this mixture of ethics. Um, and it fascinates me. But when we deal with other cultures too often, we, we expect them to see the world the same way that we do. Um, uh, the joy of literature uh, is the joy of extending your mind by engaging imagined worlds of radically different values of, that, of radically different ways of thinking that's my that's a that's an ad for the humanity
0: <laughs> so is there an opposite to a hero
2: yes and i'm not going to say he's in the white house um, yeah there's anybody uh, christianity is the opposite of a hero okay Um, Because
0: we would say heroes and villains.
2: The the fascination again of words is words never mean one thing. Mm -hmm. The word hero has 13 or 14 different connotations, depending when and where you say it. And that's true of any word. Um, uh, I have friends who like math better than words because basically a mathematical formula means something the same thing in China that it means in America, it means the same thing in Venezuela, whereas the same word doesn't mean the same thing in Plano that it means in South Dallas.
0: So uh, you were in college in the 60s, I was in college in the 80s, and my well, son- Nice who is, way of saying you're a lot younger than no me. No, no, there. no, no. <laughs> I, I, I actually my son is 14 and just going into okay. school, and now when I was in high school I read uh, Romeo and Juliet and Moby Dick and Tale of Two Cities. Um, for his summer going into freshman year, um, they read an Ayn Rand book called Anthem, and then they had a long list to choose from of books I had never heard of. <laughs> so why is it that kids today are not uh, reading the Iliad and Odyssey, and or even Shakespeare for that matter? Or are they, and just <laughs> having? There's so many
2: reasons for that. One is, there's just so darn long. Uh, and in education today, there's a tendency to read the shortest work by a great author. Um, I would like to see everybody imbued with the Iliad and the Odyssey. I think they're the they're the bedrock of Western culture, um, and you know. There are only two plots in literature. One of them is a man wandering around the Mediterranean trying to get home, and the other one isn't. Um,
0: <laughs>
2: they, the, the classics uh, are too often presented as something historical, something that happened a long time ago that has nothing to do with us. Well, you could say the same thing of uh, something that happened a year ago, and in modern culture maybe two days ago. It's all in the past. And the classics, again, uh, seem alien, and that's the reason to read them. Uh, It's a radically different vision of life. It's the natural, it's a radically different world. And in the modern world, 99 out of every 100, maybe more than that, people who read these things are going to read them in translation. So they're already filtered. And uh, as a translator, I value that experience. It enables you to travel into another's mind. Um, if you had to read one, I think everybody in the world ought to read the Odyssey every eight weeks. Um, it, is, it has everything you need to know about learning to read literature, uh, and it has everything you need to know about telling a good story and being a good con man.
0: <laughs> Which are all very marketable skills. <laughs> So, I, I would connect,
2: I'm not about to connect that to being a good dean because uh, <laughs> there are people here who will record that.
0: Now, just as a, a matter of, uh, uh, is there anyone else here who took Latin in high school or uh, college?
2: Wow. Now, see, it's the best looking
0: one. Yeah. Well, I did too. D- 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 well, all but one. <laughs> <laughs> So we're talking about reading books. Uh, we, with the uh, Richardson read one, Reads One Books, we had a fascinating book in the circle. Um, so who do you think the heroes are, or the, or the heroic people in this book? None of them.
2: Um, um, you know, that's, it's a strange book. Um, it's, I'm, I'm going to confess I didn't actually like it. Um, Sorry, Susan. um, It was a pretty good book. As marketed as science fiction, it would have been a pretty traditional science fiction work that fits into the category of Your Creations Will Destroy You. Um, I didn't like the characters, uh, particularly the central character to me who was May, this uh, insipid woman. Um, Am I okay to say that? um who is like uh, i like to talk to people who read a lot she's halfway but how many know who mina harker is Ooh, read dracula she's the woman in dracula who memorizes train schedules and knows and, may, and enables the quote men to do their work um uh, she's she's brilliant but it seems to me a work of literature today can do better than saying if a woman is brilliant, we've got to um, we've got to balance this out by a letting her want to have sex anywhere with a man who fascinates her, um, even if she'd never really talked much to him, and b can be manipulated as easily as water flows downhill. Um, so. I, that was my problem with 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 her um, the book the book makes some important points I mean the book is about uh, the danger that technology not only brings marvels it brings horrors the, there's a Greek word that you can learn tonight Danos okay it's the root word of dinosaur which is, which means uh, Terrible lizard, okay? Danos is the Greek word that in one context means terrible and in another context means wonderful because that's the way the Greeks thought. It depends when and where you were doing or thinking what you were doing or thinking. So um, technology has created this incredible possibility of communicating instantaneously vast amounts of information across vast distances, linking us, changing us, transforming us. I, read, I saw something um, this afternoon um, that teenagers now text, prefer to text more than they prefer to talk to somebody. And they spend more time texting than talking. Now that's Danos. That's terrible. They don't talk to each other. That's wonderful. They feel less lonely. They have connections. It's that they're not limited to the people they can talk to. So it's both destroying something and creating something new. So it's about that notion. And yeah, I think someday there will be so much transparency that um, privacy will become a lost thought. Um, uh, I was reading also this afternoon uh, an essay in the latest issue of the American Scholar called Our Crumbling First Amendment. And the essay is about the fact that Facebook and Twitter and the other social platforms are transforming what the First Amendment is about, and essentially crumbling the old notion of what freedom of speech was, because of uh, Facebook can just can take off things that they don't like you said, they can remove them, um, and free speech, politi- particularly political speech, means you get to say annoying things. Yeah.
0: I just had a great idea, and it went right out. So, <laughs> how much of that—that that terrible or marvelous—has um, to do with where you are on the where you are sitting on the cutting edge, whether you are on the front end of the tipping point or the back end? I mean, I think there are technological people who say, "Wow, this is a marvel," but people who are more traditionalist, for lack of a better word, would say, oh, that's terrible. I mean, I'm sure we did think the same about refrigerators and telephones and automobiles. Everything changes. Mm -hmm. Um, What you've
2: just said leads me to, I think, an important point about what technology is doing. Now, again, I keep coming back to political statements, but recently there was a statement made, again, by the president, Truth isn't truth. And he was right. That's actually a statement that's very modern because what the social media have done and what the world has become of the modern world is truth is always seen through the filter of your assumptions, your belief, your imagination, your upbringing, your religion, your education. Uh, no two people see the same event the same way uh, or interpret its meaning in the same way back to the humanities the humanities are about we study the ways in which people embed life with meaning uh, how, what are the values that lead me to judge a, this act one way and another person to see it another we see that as a constant in American culture now what's happened in the world we live, I, as I say, I have a degree in the Middle in medieval thought, which is also another completely alien country that I hope some of you visit. Right? In the Middle Ages, think about it: the Earth was in the center of the universe, it was like a teenage boy. Okay, <laughs> everything revolved around it. Okay? The stars and the planets revolved around us in perfect circles. And there were seven of them because that was a meaningful number. In fact, they lived in a universe where everything made sense because it was a book composed by a God who made no mistakes and gave meaning to everything. So everything had a meaning. You just had to find it and live by it. Now consider the 21st century. We live in a small speck of a planet way off the main shipping routes of the universe. (laughs) We're a speck in a universe that's unimaginably vast, that was created, we think, by an inexplicable explosion and and is expanding outward faster than it ought to be. but never stopping. Okay. So how do you make meaning in a universe like that? So of course different people will make it uh, in a different way. I like science fiction because I like reading about people encountering not just other cultures on Earth, but other planets. Okay. What will we do when we, when we do encounter the other? We can't, we can't deal with somebody from a different political party. What are we going to do with a true alien?
0: Well, and, and how, how, the question I was just thinking is how long does it take for a story to become or a story or a person um, to become a myth? I mean I think we look at we look at presidents since we're on politics um, and, and we have that sort of day-to-day response to the current president but we look at Kennedy in a very mythical uh, frame.
2: You're bringing up all my favorite words that I don't like. <laughs> um, myth often has the connotation of just as a story that isn't true. Well, I've just told you, nothing is true. Uh, that's a story. Stories are all made up. They're all fictions. They all create alternate visions of what might be. And that's what human beings do. We tell stories. We all create an alternate universe. Uh, uh, Albert Einstein, 100 years ago this month at the birthday party of another physicist, Max Planck, said that everybody who's born is essentially dissatisfied with the universe or the world that they're born in. So we all spend our time creating another world in which we live that's more amenable to us. Uh, And he then makes a wonderful statement after that. He says, this is what the physicist does. This is what the poet does. This is what the artist does. This is what the philosopher does. He names the three great domains of human life, science, humanities, art. And we all are creating meaning. So what we do to Kennedy is we look back and we invest his life with meaning. We invest everything with meaning. That's what human beings do. So a myth, to my mind, is simply a story that has gained complete uh, saturation of a given culture that everybody can be expected to know. Uh, Frankenstein is now a myth. Who doesn't know, when I say Frankenstein, what I'm talking about. In fact, the circle is just another Frankenstein myth. As I say, you create something, you don't pay attention to it enough, and it grows up and and will destroy you.
0: So is there any correlation between the heroic tradition and the hero's journey?
2: One of my least favorite books. (laughs) I'm gonna just sneak out at the end of this because there are all these the Youngians and other people who are going to hate me i don't like that book it's by joseph campbell it's the the notion that every there's this archetypal story of quote the hero and he that's what he calls the hero um, if you want to know the archetypal myth just go watch star war uh, star wars movies um, that just Read the. They read the. George Lucas read the book, copied down the plot lines, and he kn- he admits he does this, and just followed them in every story. And it has to do with uh, a person in a lowly in a lowly situation who has a call, goes to the outside world, has has adventures, symbolically dies and comes back to life. It's I, I'm a I'm a person who. I'm not a Platonist anymore. Uh, I used to be. Um, I don't think there's a divine model of the heroic story. Uh, what he's done is extract a model that people have used for centuries, because it makes a great story. Um, uh, the trouble is, when you call it a mono-myth and say this is the story of life, people will go imitate it and follow it, and what you'll... Do is get a good uh, formula by the number story rather than something that breaks the mold and tries to be different and challenge you. It, it Star Wars is just comfort food.
0: It. Or, so you you retrofit your story to the myth. Right. You say, oh, that was my dark night. This is yeah. my resurrection. This is this is my journey in the wilderness. Right. Well, in my case, it's true. Um, <laughs> But there is no truth. Right. Uh-huh. you're learning. Uh-huh. That's good. So, um, so obviously, you believe that the arts and humanities are important uh, in our lives and in our in our lives and our learning. So, I mean, the current. Uh, School districts teach STEM, Mm -hmm. science, technology, Mm -hmm. engineering, math, and there's a great movement to incorporate the arts into that. How do you, why is it so important, whether it's the arts or humanities or, I mean, speaking of the arts and humanities broadly, why is it important for uh, kids to learn that? Well, kids or students or college, people, young adults. (laughs) Uh, go
2: back to Einstein, all of us, make meaning. Um, Everybody here is a philosopher and a humanist, whether you know it or not, because you have a philosophy of life, whether you can, uh, I I don't care so much whether you can put it in words. It's how you live. Everybody here, go back on your life, the decisions you made, the things that you do. That's your philosophy of life. the stoic philosopher Epictetus which again all of you are now going to go look up and read something by um, said uh, what's a philosopher he said well if if you go to a carpenter and say build me a house you don't want the carpenter to show up with a book about how to build a house that he wrote you want him to build the house philosophy is investing life with a meaning by which you live and live a life that you find satisfying and deep uh, with a reservoir of meaning. Um, education, did why the humanities and arts important? Because education is not just job hunting. Yes, I, everybody should find a job, they want a job, they should go into something that guarantees work, like many evil Latin. <laughs> <laughs> Education, to me, is a balance of three things, okay? Science tells you how the physical world works, the laws uh, at work in the universe, and that's all science does, and it's a, 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 a kind of knowledge without which we cannot live but that's not enough for an educated person. The second great domain that education must include is art. We all create. We all tell stories. Every one of us told story. When you meet somebody, you don't pull out a PowerPoint about yourself. You tell stories. That's how you get to know people. That's how you create meaning in life. We wend our way through life Telling stories, right? Art is about create, uh, enhancing the experience of your individual life, making it more beautiful, more meaningful, more exciting, more troublesome. So that's it. And I don't bring up all my least favorite words. I have a word that I this said at least one person in the audience that I hate is steam. Okay. okay. STEAM is like, let's insert art into the important world of STEM, like the dorky kid who gets to go <laughs> hang out with the cheerleaders. Um, it's not enough. You need the humanities. And frankly, STEAM sounds like a bad Mel Brooks movie. <laughs> you, science, for knowledge how the world works, you can't do without it. Art. Enhancement of your experience, can't do without.
0: It. Humanities
2: is the study of the processes by which we invest life with meaning. It's, it's we study how literature lures us into a different attitude. Um, how movies change us, how art changes us. Put them all together, you have an educated person. Now, my goal in life as an educator is not just to teach humanities. I love my job. I have the arts and the humanities in a university dedicated to science and engineering. There's a complete world at UT Dallas. The problem that we have in America today is we separate them. We say, here's science, here's humanities, here's arts, go your separate ways. Have a different school. Uh, One of my concepts that I stole from uh, physics is torque. When two forces meet, if they collide, it's not very good. If they're going parallel to each other, they don't do any good. But if you put them together at the proper angle, they increase each other's efficacy and you get revolutions. Now, that's an education. Um, and that's what I believe we need, how we need to be thinking. Of. The, the great poem by Schiller, Schiller's Ode to Joy, which you've all heard, if you, how many of you have ever heard Beethoven's Ninth Symphony? The rest of you leave now, go hear it. After you read the Odyssey. After you read the, the Odyssey, um, which comes after you read Greek, learn Greek. Um, the Ode to Joy has a line about joy. That says, "Joy bindet wieder was die Menge to It's the German. It binds together what the common crowd thinks is separate. Education is about bringing together things that we think are separate, and you need all of those three major domains um, to be a full person to be, to worry about more than, we all worry about making a living, we all worry about having enough to eat, but that's not enough to be fully human.
0: Great. Uh, we have a few minutes just to, for a couple of questions from the audience. Are there any burning questions? Here on the front. Uh,
1: I'm so, a yeah. software developer. Oh, um, you,
0: your favorite software? Go, you go first. Oh,
1: I was gonna laugh about it. I'm a software developer, i an English major. Do you guys have anything in your program that you're doing to try to meld those things? Like, meld those technologies? I will say that being an English major is the
2: best thing that ever happened to you, thinking about the word. <coughs> so. Uh, yes, we do, and I love you. Um, <laughs> yes, we do. And that's actually UT Dallas has long been in the forefront of programs that link engineering. Technology and the sciences with the humanities and the arts. So come see me and come to graduate school. Pay tuition.
0: (laughs) I know it's free. Back with the martini. Yeah. Uh, What do you think is the best way to uh, to combine those things? To bring those things that seem like they're opposites, seem like they're working against each other, but knowing. Knowing they're meant to work together, what's what do you find is the best way to, to do that in life, in love, and all
1: that? <laughs> you have twenty seconds. <laughs>
2: well, one answer was to create a program called Arts and Technology. Um, the other is just don't think of them as separate. Um, and you know, se- or even if you do, think of ways to bring them together. Of Again, I don't know how many of you read romance novels or love stories, okay? Who wants to read a love story about two Protestant accountants,
0: okay?
2: (laughs) I tried it. No one read it. Uh, Every good love story is about an Arabian prince uh, and a blonde from Highland Park, um, or... A, you, know, you know what I mean. We like the sparks that come from bringing things together. Lewis Thomas, the biologist, said that what scientists and poets and artists have in common is that they see connections across events that other people think are separate. So just practice doing that, uh, is, is all that I can tell
0: you. Great. Well, we in, in our great tradition, we will uh, end with our top ten short questions, and we'll have to do them extra rapid fire tonight because Kitty is waiting in the wings. Go. So, number one, pie or cake? Yes. Number two, Rolling Stones or the Beatles?
2: Early Beatles, uh, early Rolling Stones, late Beatles. <laughs> number
0: three, Eiffel Tower or Empire State? Eiffel Tower, wanna go there again. Number four, your dream vacation spot.
2: Reykjavik.
0: Number five, the movie you've seen the most times.
2: Blade Runner.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Number six, your favorite literary hero.
2: Odysseus.
0: Number seven, your favorite personal hero. Odysseus. (laughs)
2: Odysseus. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll give a serious answer to that. Um, oh gosh, that's all I can, yeah, Sorry, sorry. Um, I have to leave out family, because everybody says that. A man named Richmond Mayo Smith, who was my the headmaster of the school where I taught, and my mentor who taught me um, that education is co-adventuring, and uh, he was a great, great human being.
0: The first vegetable that comes to your mind.
2: See, this is, could be a political joke, couldn't
0: it? Um, <laughs> broccoli. Number nine. Remembering, and it's really right here, Troilus or Achilles? Achilles. <laughs> Number ten. Pyramids or Parthenon? Parthenon. Everyone, please help me in thanking Dr. Demasparatz, and thank you all for being here. we over to Kitty. I don't know about. Uh, I don't know
1: about you all. I uh, apparently, in my zealousness, kept turning it off. <laughs> I don't know about you all, but I have homework. <laughs> Thank you Dennis, as always. uh, You always provide a lot for us to think about and um, you instigate new conversations and I'm eager to talk with many of you about your thoughts. Um, A couple of things to close before the movie and one is um, I didn't know that Jason Lemons was here tonight and he is the president of Richardson Reads One Book. Jason. Right. And also, I wanted to remind everybody that September the 20th is North Texas Giving Day. Um, I'm sure many of you have already heard, you've received an email, a tweet, it's on Instagram, it's on Facebook. Um, Ayers message to you about this is it really does matter. This is one of the greatest opportunities of the year for your gift to mean a little bit more and all gifts matter. So any gifts, $25 or greater, uh, will be matched by a certain percentage. And AIR, if you would like to hear and see more continued programming by us and by others, please give, open your heart, give what you think fits. Uh, You go to northtexasgivingday.org, and the giving is on the 20th, but you can schedule the donation anytime between now and September the 19th. And then here's a deal that could be even better than that. Uh, I know for a fact, because I have been watching this evening live. Sorry, Dennis. um, I also observe while listening. Uh, Some of you like to drink beer. I am all name names. Uh, This Friday, Four Bullets Brewery here in Richardson is donating $5 of every beer flight that is purchased to air for North Texas Giving Day. So if you wanna drink some beer and also benefit air, go to Four Bullets this Friday evening between five and nine, have a flight of beer, and know that you're helping air and you're enjoying a really good social time. So we really appreciate our partners at Four Bullets. And to close, our next air time is gonna be on October the 15th, which happens to be a Monday, not a Tuesday and it will feature Katarina Miltonberger, who is a mixologist. We will have a specialty cocktail that evening, and the movie will be The Great Gatsby. So thank you all for being here for this wonderful kickoff. I know that uh, Dennis has shared a lot for everyone to think about, and thank you, David, and hope you all enjoy the movie.